Father, we're not worthy to come before you. We're not worthy to open your word. We're not worthy to consider it. And we're certainly not capable of obeying it in our own power, Father. We stand and sit before you this morning as men and women who have hearts that desperately need you, who have lives lives filled with all manner of sin. We are people, Father, of unclean lips, as Isaiah refers to himself. By your mercy, by your grace, you have called us into a faith that has cleansed us of all that unrighteousness by the work of your Son in our place as he died for our sins, as he lived a righteous life that we could not. This book, Father, is a reminder not only of the salvation that came to us by your grace, but also of the call that you put upon the lives of those who follow you in faith, a call of holiness, a call that recognizes we are nothing apart from you, but yet we can be like you to a degree if we are willing to avail ourselves of what you give us by your Spirit, that of the knowledge of what you desire and of the power to listen to our spirit rather than our flesh and of an awareness, Father, that you are looking down upon us as we serve you and you are calling us to be worthy servants. We thank you, Father, that your book is is capable of reminding us of these things and of giving us a concern for these things, for we know in our own hearts and in the world around us we would not give consideration to these things. So, Father, please do that work this morning. Call us to be better servants, to be aware of the opportunities that you've laid before us and to jealously desire them so that we may please you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the book of Ephesians, Paul has gone through a pretty steady, patient, deliberate examination of probably the most important aspects of our faith, of Christianity, beginning with salvation itself, as you remember in chapter 1. And he went through a, a careful examination of our call into faith by the grace of God, leading to an inheritance, he tells us, in an age to come, even now with a down payment in the form of the Spirit indwelling each of us. And then a buffet of good works, which we can seek to accomplish in the power of the Spirit so as to please Him for reward's sake. And then beyond that, He joins us in a community of other believers, united by that same Spirit in one baptism, in one faith, so that we can then serve in a community in which our opportunities to do good works are amplified by those around us who can support in that way. But then Paul moved to talking about unity in the body, about the need to use your gift, about the essential quality of this gathering in respect to those other goals. If you want to do the works he's appointed, if you want to please him, if we're seeking after the best result that we can obtain, then it's essential that we be a part, an active part of a community God has designed to enhance, to encourage us along that path. And unity lies at the center of all of that work, the unity of the body. And that has brought him now to the point of discussing sanctification. That's really where we started in chapter 4, but getting into it, he started with the body as a whole. Now he's going to narrow down in the conversation today. He's going to talk about us individually or as subgroups like men, women, parents, and the like. That's where we're going. And so we're on the topic of sanctification, and I thought it was very appropriate the passage that Mark read this morning out of Hebrews chapter 12, one of the classic passages on the importance of pursuing sanctification, understanding that God drives us to holiness in some cases through discipline. 
But combining that idea of discipline with the idea of instruction, that's where we're going to be now in chapter 4. This idea that God instructs us concerning the right things even as he disciplines us in other areas of our life. Now, in our previous study a couple weeks ago, Paul was asking the believers in Ephesus not to walk as they once did as they lived as unbelievers, as, quote, Gentiles, he called them. And he uses the metaphor of this journey, of a walk, to represent the course of an earthly life. In verses 17 through 19, which is where we left off, Paul described the walk of unbelievers and from God's point of view. He said, from God's point of view, unbelievers, or as he calls them Gentiles, walk in futility in their minds. That is, their thinking is vain. Their thinking is futile. They assume they understand life's purpose. They assume they understand what life means. But they're just walking in the dark. The world chases the wrong things. Chases them in the wrong ways. Out of ignorance. And after all is said and done in the life of an unbeliever, they just return to dust, and of course they eventually face judgment. Paul says, the mind of an unbeliever is darkened in their understanding of truth. That's a way of describing the spiritual blindness that all people possess from birth, which prevents them from knowing God truly. And so over the course of the life of an unbeliever, because of this darkened understanding, their conscience becomes increasingly callous, Paul says, increasingly greedy, for sensuality in all its forms. And then Paul has established that principle, then he moved his audience through the progression of that understanding of how unbelievers live, so that he could make a point to us, the church, that thinking drives behavior. Even business consultants and business training and seminars, you know, the stuff you see if you're in a corporate environment, it comes along every now and again. It's all from the same principle. Your thinking will drive your behavior. So we try to alter the thinking of people in one context or another, whether that's in business or in church, because we have hope that that will drive a better behavior. And as you see in Paul's example, the world's ignorance of God and their callous heart, well, that explains their wanton life of sin. Their behavior is explained by what their thinking holds. An unbeliever's mind is trapped by a certain perspective, a view of self and a view of the world that justifies a lifestyle of greed, of violence, of lust, of hatred, though they don't call it such things. They, they speak of it in other ways. That's what's actually going on. They walk according to what they know. And so unless God intervenes to bring that person a knowledge of himself, a knowledge of the truth, well, they're going to remain walking in that darkness. But on the other hand, a person who receives the truth by means of God's Spirit now has gained an understanding of God in a true way, and it holds the potential to transform their walk as a human being. And that's where Paul goes next. When we say walk now, in the context of chapter 4, we're talking euphemistically about this life journey that a Christian has in contrast to the life journey that we would have had as an unbeliever. And the Bible uses a fancy term for this idea. It's sanctification. The idea of becoming more sanctified or more holy. Paul says this in verse 20. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is the likeness of God, which I'm sorry, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness in the truth. Paul opens here by saying that the church did not learn Christ in this way. And what he's speaking, of course, is the way that an unbeliever learns their walk of life. So the comparison is between how unbelievers learn to walk 
versus how believers should learn to walk. And we don't learn our walk in the same way they learn their walk. They learn their walk according to the flesh. Their flesh drives them from one lustful desire to the next. They have no spiritual compass. Now, don't mistake religiosity. Don't mistake piety for true spiritual insight. Just because an unbeliever goes to church or mosques or temples of one kind or another, just because they have a fascination with the spirit world or whatever might grab their attention, those things are not the equivalent of having a true spiritual understanding of the truth. They're just the product of the flesh in, ironically, a spiritual domain. But they come from the same source, and their walk reflects that. That's the walk we used to have. Whether we were religious or not, whatever we did before faith, that's who we were too. But Paul says you now have a new walk because of faith in Jesus Christ. And you and I don't learn this walk in the same way that we were learning, so to speak, our previous walk. We don't learn to walk with Christ by paying attention to the desires of the flesh. The knowledge we have now for how to walk in Christ will not come out of our flesh. Our direction must come from the spirit that God has put inside us as taught through the word of God. I think a lot of Christians, well, let's say some at least, fail to make this leap. They continue to walk according to what their flesh wants. And the Bible has a term for a Christian who walks in Christ the same way they walked before Christ. We call that a carnal Christian. Carnality. The word carnal just means literally flesh. And so we're describing a believer who charts their path in life by paying attention to the desires of the flesh, which is so sadly ironic because they have a better choice now that they never had before. And I know all of us experience a degree of carnality. All of us follow the desires of our flesh from time to time to some degree. I, I am not saying that there are Christians who are carnal versus Christians who are not. It's a matter of degree, yes. But none of us being free from that temptation are otherwise excused for following it. The question Paul's asking the church this morning is, are we letting our flesh drive our path in life? Is carnality the rule or the exception for us? Are we moving toward this new path in Christ, growing in a closer walk with him, gaining a greater likeness in him? Or are we trying to learn Christ the way we learned our prior life? Paul says that's not how it's meant to be. We're not supposed to learn Christ that way. We learn Christ by the Spirit of God teaching our spirit as a matter of grace. I think it's also important to notice what Paul did not say. Paul did not say learning, say, Christianity. He didn't say we don't learn Christianity this way. Or he didn't say we don't learn obedience this way. Or piety or whatever. He said we don't learn Christ because we're talking about a walk of knowing him who dwells in us. We're talking about knowing Christ's character. That's the process of sanctification. Knowing his love, knowing his mercy, knowing his expectations, knowing his values, knowing what call he has put on our life. You might compare it a little bit to marriage. Marriage is fundamentally about getting to know someone, not getting to know marriage in some theoretical way. It's about knowing a person. And you walk with that person through a journey in life so that you can begin to understand who they are, what they need, what their desires and necessities are, what their weaknesses are. It's about coming to know them. And in our way with Christ, he's in us, he's living in us. The goal is not to learn Christianity, some religious form. The goal is to know him. You'll take a lifetime to get to know him, and even then it just scratches the surface. 
But it's a pursuit of spirit, not a pursuit of the flesh, not a pursuit of what you want, a pursuit of what he teaches you. It's the only way to know him truly. And I think that's why Paul adds in verse 21 this parenthetical statement, this rhetorical parenthetical statement, when he says, if his audience in fact had heard Christ in their hearts, as if to suggest maybe some of you may not have even taken the full journey to knowing him yet. That is, a person who has merely learned Christ in a physical, fleshly way, that's a person who's still an unbeliever. In practical terms, we'd be saying someone who walks into a church building, sits down, maybe attends regularly, or maybe a child who's taken to church every week because their parents bring them, or maybe a spouse who accompanies a husband or wife just because they don't want to have fights every Sunday morning, so they just give in. I mean, there's a million ways this plays out, but there are people who come alongside Christ. They are floating in and out of the community in some way, but it's not in them. And as a result, they're knowing Christ only in the way a flesh can know anything. It's head knowledge without spiritual understanding. It's association, not relationship. In that sense, you can see opportunity for the flesh to pursue Christ even before faith, pursuing religion rather than pursuing relationship. And it's a common tragedy. You see it every day among Catholics, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, other false faiths, and even within true churches. Individuals who think they have what they don't have. They invoke the name of Christ, but they don't know the gospel. And since they're trying to learn him in the flesh, they learn really nothing in the end. Their fleshly pursuit leaves them just as lost as it ever was before. They're just involved in a community at a very superficial level. I speak on things I know because that was me for a long time in my life, until my late 20s. Not just in the Catholic tradition that I grew up in, but even after that, as my wife patiently dragged her unbelieving husband, to Protestant churches for a good period of that time. I was just in but not of the church. Thankfully, God had a plan to bring me out of that ignorance and to grant me the knowledge of the truth that saves. That's before faith. Paul's not speaking to that so much, though he he alludes to the possibility there in verse 21. What he's really talking about, though, is those who have been taught in him, Paul says in verse 21. He's talking to the church who is in him, but now is stumbling or has yet to even begin a walk in the Spirit. As one who has heard the true gospel, has received it in the Spirit, has been born again, that individual then begins to learn the truth in Jesus by the Spirit. So as to walk a walk of life as a follower of Jesus in the Spirit. I had some conversation this morning after our Sunday school hour about the difficulty of doctrine in some cases, the difficulty that it imposes on a new believer, that we struggle with certain concepts. One of the things I said in that conversation, though, I think bears repeating here this morning, we're saved before we know any doctrine. The knowledge of doctrine is not a prerequisite to entering into the faith that saves. For if that were the case, I mean, really, who in here is even feeling ready even now? No, we're saved ignorantly, because that's where we all start. And then by God's grace, we grow to know more. That's what Paul's asking us to do, to grow and then to walk based on that growth, all of it in the spirit. Paul says in verse 22 that we are to begin by laying aside the old self, which he says is our former manner of life. That word manner of life in Greek could be translated lifestyle. So our former lifestyle It needs to be laid aside. And he uses language here that suggests a garment. So he's saying, as it were, take off this old, filthy coat that you're walking around with, your old self. It represents your old way of thinking. 
It represents your old way of behaving. He says, that stuff's still clinging to you even as you've come to faith. Let's pull that off and let's lay it aside and walk on without it. So if you want to imagine now, at the moment you came to faith, you have an inner person, the spirit nature of you that God born again, that he brings to life. So inside you, you have this inner person, sometimes Paul calls him the inner man, who's brought to life spiritually by God's spirit. And Paul says in Romans 6 that that new spirit he gives you at the moment of faith is sinless. It is 100% sinless. It will always agree with Christ. It knows the law. It wants to do what God's law expects. The spirit in you is never pulling you into sin. But that inner self that's been made new by faith is still cloaked in the old flesh of your old nature like a filthy overcoat. And so now the challenge of walking in the spirit is finding ways to remove that old coat so that you can display the Christ-likeness that has been put inside you by Christ's Spirit. In union with our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, we gain the power, the ability, and the support to jettison that old nature. But if you're going to walk properly with Christ, displaying His likeness in this way, Paul says we have to lay it aside. Paul uses a Greek verb that's conjugated in the aorist, infinitive, Form, which is not a form we have in English. It is an ongoing imperative or command. Ongoing imperative or command. We are to evermore continue laying aside that coat. Evermore, never stop, continually, it won't finish, lay aside that coat. So if the coat represents our old lifestyle, that is the way we used to think and walk in the flesh as unbelievers, then we need to dump it like a cheap suit. But... It's a lifelong pursuit. So what we do is we start today and every day we pull a thread off that coat and we're disassembling it, as it were, off of our body. If only it were so easy to just throw it off and we'd be done, right? It is coming, the day of our glorification. That's the moment God will give us a new body. The day of our glorification is the day the coat finally drops to the ground. But the fact that God's going to remove that coat from us in a day to come does not excuse a lazy approach in the meantime. We cannot say to ourselves, well, I'll just leave the coat on for now because God will take it off later. No, that is a disobedient approach to the walk of life that God has called us to in faith. The call of sanctification is the call for every believer to live with a desire and intent to start pulling that coat off as soon as we can. And we do this through access to the mind of Christ. God has given us a spirit that desires to obey him. And as we learn more through that spirit... We will want to take that coat off more and more. Paul says that flesh is even now, he says, being corrupted by its lustful desires. The lusting of the flesh and its self-decaying, self-destructive quality. You know, because as you follow the lust of your flesh, you're only hurting yourself. So think of it in those terms. The body has this inherent, instinctive desire for self-destruction. And that didn't stop when you became a believer. Your spirit changed and your eternity changed. But your body didn't. So your body is literally decaying around you. And we see this in literal terms, right? As we all get closer to the the day we have to replace it. The day it goes into the ground. Thankfully, it goes into the ground. But our body is literally dying around us. A death made necessary by our corrupt nature. So to take my analogy one step further, if your old coat is already bare threads falling apart around you of no concern or value, destined to be replaced, well, why are you trying to preserve it? We do that when we honor it by listening to what it wants. We're propping it up in terms of its importance in our life. Paul says instead, take hold of those fraying threads 
and give them a good pull. Did your mom ever tell you when you saw your sweater, Frank, don't pull on that, don't pull on that, right? And what do we do? Don't pull on this. I don't know what it is. You know what it is? It's your flesh. Don't do that? Oh, yeah, I want to do that. Well, here's one time when you can. Paul says, we must not learn Christ in the way we used to walk. That is, according to the flesh. We must lay aside the flesh. We must make this flesh inconsequential, not all important. We all know when it comes to sin, the struggle is real. While some of us are a little more successful, maybe, I bet that's more of an illusion than reality. You know, while you're struggling with sin A, and this person over here seems to have no problem with it, what you're forgetting is they've got sin B. And you have no problem with sin, B, right? It's always a matter of a selective group of sins, but we all have it. No one's totally free of the fight. So it begs a question when you read the opening here of the passage, how can Paul speak of this challenge so casually as if to suggest, yeah, it's just a simple matter of putting your mind to it. You can do it. Come on. Well, maybe it's a little simpler than we thought. Because as Paul goes on, he says the hard work of this process, it's actually done by Jesus himself. Paul says in verse 23, Begin by being renewed in the spirit of your mind. To renew, that just means to make something new. And we know we've already been made spiritually new by our faith in Jesus Christ. We were born again in the spirit. We received Christ's spirit. But Paul says beyond that, you need to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that term, spirit of the mind, it refers to your thinking in general. Your attitudes. Your outlook on life. That is to say, our thinking must now be made as new as our spirit is being taught by our spirit as Christ works in us. The Greek verb translated be renewed is passive here, which is a distinct departure from what he said in the earlier verse. In the earlier verse, he used an aorist infinitive, which is a perpetual command. Here, he uses a passive form of the Greek verb, which means the work of changing your mind is done to you, not by you. We have to give ourselves over to the study of Christ in his word. And if we do that, he does the work of changing our thinking. He renews our mind by his truth so that we would gain a desire to live according to the spirit. Because isn't really desire at the heart of the problem? I mean, objectively, I could give you a list of here's the do's and the don'ts of life. It wouldn't be complete, but we could go through that exercise. And I don't know that anyone here would object to the do's or the don'ts. We'd all agree with it. That's never the problem, or usually not the problem. The problem is we desire the don'ts. And in the moments of those decisions, when we decide to do the wrong thing, it's because the desire overwhelmed our intellectual understanding of right and wrong. But if someone could change that desire, if the desire itself went away, well, then the process becomes dramatically simplified, doesn't it? Now I just have to do what I know is right, and there's no desire standing between me and the right thing. I know many Christians who have testimony of exactly that experience in some corner of their life. A good friend who he had been a lifelong smoker, and his wife had tried to bribe him out of smoking for years. I remember the stories he used to tell me. He was a computer guy, and so his wife would say, I'll let you get a new printer. Let you get a new monitor. I mean, this is not a family that had a lot of money. So for them, these were major sacrifices. She was willing to put anything on the table to help him. And he wanted those things. But the desire he had for smoking exceeded his desire for these other things. And in a moment of God's grace, as he came to faith, God just took the desire away. He stopped, never thought a second thing of it. It wasn't some work of the will. He just didn't want to do it anymore. Jesus says he'll give you the desires of your heart. It doesn't mean he'll give you what your desire is. He'll give you a new desire. That's what it means. And he does that as he chooses to in a patient process. Because in that walk, 
There's benefit for us. There's glory for him. So he's asking us to change our thinking. Just as I said earlier, behavior extends from thinking. So the process of walking in the Spirit, walking with Christ in the Spirit, is one that begins with changing your thinking, and that thinking process changes because God changes it. What part of it is for us to do? Open the Bible. Spend time in the, the new programming. Now, Paul said, lay aside the old self, that is, lay aside that old coat that's hiding the new spiritual self you've been given. That was a verb of action because it calls for you to take steps to disassemble the old way of life. But the challenge in making it happen is the desire that stands in the way. And the way the desires change is by a renewing of the spirit of your mind. If you're walking in the flesh, then when I tell you the Bible says lay aside the old self, your flesh takes charge to try to get that to happen. We say to ourselves, okay, I need to make a list, draw up some plans, pledge some commitments, make some New Year's resolutions. Here we go. How long does that last? It's ironic, right? It's trying to be spiritual, follow Christ in the flesh. And certainly some of those steps may be sensible and warranted in the face of ongoing sin. But they won't be successful by themselves if you don't have a change of mind, of a thought, of a desire that's been counseled by Scripture. Lasting progress doesn't come that way. You cannot learn Christ that way is the point. Instead, you learn it spiritually. And the key is... To obtain a Christ-like mind, which only comes from spiritual training in the Word. Paul says in verse 24, you'll be putting on a new self. Paul is presenting a really beautiful picture here between all that he said. He's, he's contrasting spiritual reality, which is inward, with an outward appearance. So he's saying we learn Christ first by an inward change of the Spirit that comes through faith. Which is a work done by God alone, not by us. That's the saving work. Of knowing Christ by grace. And initially, at that moment of salvation, as our new spirit arrives, it's obscured by an old sinful flesh that covers it up and doesn't let the world know that it's happened. We all have encountered this, right? Someone says they're believing, and we look at their life and we wonder, don't we? And it's natural. We don't have enough insight to know really what's going on in their hearts, so we try to make an assessment based on what we see on the outside. We're judging a book by its cover. And sometimes we'll be right, sometimes we'll be wrong. Paul's saying, make it a lot easier for everyone. Get the right cover on. So God asks us, lay aside the old self, put on the new self. In other words, we are called, as a matter of our faith in Christ, we are called to make our outer appearance agree with what is inwardly true by God's work in our spirit. And that's a process that's centered on, you notice between those two imperatives, between those two verbs that are action-oriented, what lies between them? Let me change your mind. It's a process of renewing the mind that Christ does the work, and then as he does that, we follow. You know, a few years ago, it became fashionable in the church to wear clothing or bracelets that said, WWJD. Remember this? What would Jesus do was the sentiment. And the idea was, let's stir our conscience into thinking in godly ways about how we do things so that we would promote godly behavior, right? Change our thinking, get the right behavior. And it was a nice idea. But I think, honestly, it had the wrong approach. The bracelets should have said, WDJS, what did Jesus say? It should be a call to get into the Word. It should be a call to get into the thinking of Christ, to the instructions of Christ, into the example of Christ. Because at the end of the day, you can tell me what Jesus would have done. That doesn't help me understand how I do it. The Bible says the way we do it is to obtain 
a share of Christ's thoughts, to obtain a measure of his desires, to let him transform our mind. And that comes by allowing God's word to replace our thoughts. And as God renews your mind, you're going to see a change in behavior. But it's a progression. That's why we talk about sanctification being a walk or a journey. In time, if you stick with it, God will transform your life in one way or another into what Paul says here is a life of likeness of God in holiness, righteousness, and truth. It might be about now that you begin to question the promise that I'm giving you out of Scripture. This idea that if you devote yourself to the study of God's Word, there is an expectation that that changing of your mind will drive a changing behavior. You may look at your life and and say, look, I still got lots of sin and I've been studying the Bible quite a while. And I still go home and do very much the same things I used to do. I still stumble. I'm still straining to gain hold of this new self I'm supposed to put on. And so as you encounter scripture and you hear what it's saying and yet you continue to make the same old mistakes, you start to wonder, well, I wonder if renewing my mind by God's word is truly working in my case. Maybe I'm the exception to the rule. If that's you, if you're thinking in those terms, may I suggest that the very fact that you recognize your sin and that you're unhappy with it is proof in itself that the word of God is already working in your heart. Furthermore, have you forgotten the various sins that God has already removed from your life? I'm not thinking that any of us are perfect, of course, but I'll bet if we did a serious inventory of our life before and after salvation, especially if you've walked with the Lord for any meaningful period of time, I'll bet you with some time we could uncover any number of little habits, ways of thinking, ways of speaking that you've transitioned away from, maybe didn't even notice. You ever had that experience where someone says, you know, you used to swear a lot or you know, I've noticed this has changed about you. What, what is, what's going on? And if nothing else, it's a moment of encouragement, not of pride, hopefully, but of, of encouragement where you just say to yourself, hey, you're right. That's a work God did. I didn't even notice it was happening. The behaviors you've already laid aside are like the threads of your coat you've already managed to, to pull. Now, don't take that encouragement and run the wrong way and think your work is over. I'm just pointing out the fact that you may not be recognizing what God is doing because it doesn't necessarily involve a lightning bolt. There are days when there are people in in the walk as a Christian, like my friend, who have a moment. They can really point to it. They can see God's work before and after. And those are great moments. But you don't necessarily get those. Some people's addictions fade away. Some people's anger dissipates. Some people's jealousies just don't rear their ugly heads as often. That's progression. That's sanctification. That would not have happened apart from the work of God in your spirit. Sanctification is a lifelong process that takes time. And while we know it takes time, while we know it's progressive, let's not get into the habit of excusing laziness or neglect on our part or or even on others. Let's just say what scripture says. We want to continue laying aside that coat. We want to continue to renew the mind. We want to expect that over time, a faithful and sincere desire to find God in his word will be met with the power of God in our spirit to change our behavior. How many stories do you think we could tell here at Oak Hill Bible Church? How many times can we tell a story over the last 30-something years of someone who came through these doors, who sat under the teaching of God's Word, and in a course of some period of time, their lives were changed? How many people in here could tell that story? How many different people could we walk up to and they'd have something that is a before and after testimony And the thing that switched the before to the after was their time in the Word here at Oak Hill Bible Church. Not a certain sermon, not one guy's special message, just the consistency of that bearing on their heart. How many marriages have been healed? How many addictions were broken? How many lusts were removed? How many hurts were forgiven? 
How many times did anger cool or resentment be mollified or relationships get restored? I don't know. I don't need to know. But I'm sure the number is greater than zero. And I doubt we're done. And as we think about those moments, we can't turn and say, oh, it was excellent preaching, self-evidently, or stirring messages. It was simply the truth of God's word faithfully preached in season and out of season, which is met by an audience willing to listen. It's the renewing of a mind, learning Christ spiritually, rather than just making an outward show of religion or pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and muscling our way through our sin problems, which never works. These are the things Paul expected to see changing in a church. And he's calling them to set their mind on learning Christ in this way because to do anything else will inhibit their mission, their purpose. Some sins will be more prominent than others, but it's a process of inventory of one thing after another. And I think it's very common in the church for us to start doing that inventory on behalf of others. We'll tell them this is what needs to change in their life. And I have found in my own experience that often God's working on something different than we think needs to get worked on. It's not that God doesn't care about all sin. He does. But if we took your life and made an inventory from worst sin to last sin, least sin, and could chart that perfectly, uh, you know, it's not necessarily the case that God's working on number one, even if that's the one we see and think should be number one. Sometimes God has decided there's some others down this list that are actually more important to me, maybe because they're contributing to number one. When we step in and try to reorganize that on someone else's behalf, I think we get in the way of sanctification more than help it. We need to let God do that work while encouraging people throughout the process. Because a walk with Christ means changing a thousand little areas of your life individually, but as a corporate body, Paul now turns his attention to five sins that work against unity. It's not that these sins are worse than others necessarily, but it's because of their effect on unity and the necessity of a unified church in order to accomplish sanctification in general. He wants to address these up front. We're not going to go through all of them this morning. I'm going to save one for next time that leads us into the next chapter. But let's deal with four of the five this morning. Notice each of these has three parts. Paul will give a negative command. Do not. He will follow that with a positive command. Here's what you should do. And then he will finally give justification for why the positive command should be followed. I'll read the whole list, including all five. We'll only deal with some of them today. Beginning in verse 25. Paul says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So Paul begins saying, Therefore, that as you walk in the Spirit, he asked the church to set aside first, number one, set aside falsehood, or the word in Greek just could mean deception. So deception is more than spoken lies. It's anything that misrepresents reality. Even flattery is a form of deception. 
And it runs counter to the unity of the body because as we deceive one another in whatever form, it gives rise to a loss of trust in what happens in this room. It's like that old garment reemerges and becomes a barrier. It cuts us off from one another. And that's the problem with deception. And instead of deception, Paul gives the positive command to speak truth to one another. He quotes Zechariah. Where in Zechariah, the Lord tells Israel something very similar. He tells Israel, I want you to be unified through the truth. And that's what Paul's saying to the church. Now remember, sometimes truth hurts. The truth, though, unifies in the end because if it's an exhortation or a critique, if it's a rebuke, it has the long-term potential to unify us in the truth, to unify us in holiness. If we're unified by overlooking sin, we're not truly unified. We're letting everybody wear their own clothing, as it were, their old self. That's not true unity in the church. But we do it all in love. Paul's justification for the positive command is that we're all members of one another. We're all members of one body. If we can't be truthful in this context, you're never going to be truthful anywhere. Because there is no context in which we are more alike, more unified, have more reason to be truthful. Likewise, he says, unrighteous anger. That's the next sin. He says that can drive a wedge between members of the body. And notice Paul starts, though, by saying, go ahead, be angry. Anger in this context would mean having a healthy sense of righteous indignation against anything that's wrong, any sin. And he's saying, be angry. You know, it's all right to get a little angry when sin exists in the body. It's all right to have an emotionally strong reaction to something that is, in fact, wrong. Even God himself shows wrath against sin. Even Jesus took a whip and drove the money changers Out of the temple. But then Paul says, in being angry, you have to guard against the problem of sin. And he makes a distinction between righteous forms of anger and sinful forms of anger. Because although anger itself is not wrong, it can give cause to sin if that anger is not in keeping with righteousness. So we should never become angry for the wrong reason. But even if we become angry for the right reasons, Paul says, we have to seek to resolve the issue before the sun goes down. And that's a euphemism. It's not meant literally. It's kind of a colloquial way of saying we should do it in a timely way. Paul's positive command is, in the context of anger, be angry with righteousness and don't let that anger fester. Don't let it get control of you. Don't let it cause you to go astray. You cannot let it sit there for too long, Paul says, because it gives opportunity for the devil. The devil has zero spiritual power over the believer because you've been born again by a new spirit that's united with Christ and therefore the enemy's dominion in our life has been broken. But nonetheless, he still desires to see God's people operate according to that old nature, according to their flesh. And anything he can do to tempt the flesh, to reassert itself, to be in control, he'll do it. He'll try it. Whatever works. And as we give over to those temptations, we basically conceded from the spirit back to the flesh. Flesh, you take the wheel for a while. Have fun. Paul says, when you get angry, whether it's righteous or not, if you don't let it go, if you don't resolve the situation that created it, you're doing something to your own detriment. You've given the opportunity to the enemy to take that anger and start playing with it in your heart, in your mind. You begin to get resentful. You begin to get jealous. You begin to get spiteful, vindictive, or worse. What may have begun as righteous anger, as a righteous response to someone's error, it turns into sin itself. Paul says, the consequences of misplaced or unresolved anger split the church. They work against unity, and it's obvious how. That's the second concern. The third concern, those who are stealing, 
Obviously, we know theft is wrong, but it can be especially devastating in the body of Christ. And that's the implication here. Paul's concerned about those who are leading a dishonest life, perhaps even taking from the church or from members of the church. It's likely that that behavior, if it existed before they became a believer and continued after they became a believer, it's likely they would just bring that into the body of Christ. We know that's possible. And Paul says that is a fast way to destroy the unity of the body because it casts suspicions and it robs trust. Everyone instead, he says, should go about performing your own work in a good and acceptable fashion. Not only do you not cast shame upon Christ through your theft, but you restore trust and unity in the body. And then he says the justification to go along with that positive command. He says, you will be adding to the resources of the body by your work such that the body as a whole now has a greater potential to bless others. So rather than one person stealing from everyone else, everyone is contributing to the gain of those in need. Fourth, Paul directs that we would not let an unwholesome word leave our mouth. I honestly believe I could preach an hour on this one. And not because I'm so smart, but because the Bible has so much to say about the mouth, the tongue, our speech. Here, the Greek word for unwholesome is literally the word counterfeit or worthless. Because counterfeit currency is literally worthless. And so are certain kinds of speech. This is an interesting and a very biblical way to think of speech. Speech is supposed to carry value for someone else. You ever heard your mom say, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all? That's actually representing a biblical value. The biblical value is that speech should be as purposeful as any other work you would do. And if it is not to the benefit of someone, it has no purpose. Spreading innuendo, crude jokes, unfair remarks, or gossip is another form of unwholesome, counterfeit speech. All of these sorts of things have the potential to injure others, to weaken the body, to do nothing of any value for anyone. So don't do it. Don't say it. There's no purpose in it. We're not just filling time with conversation. Even an idle, unthoughtful word might fall into one of these categories, and as such, it shouldn't be spoken. Now, this is so much easier said than done. James says the last thing you'll tame in your body, if you're at work and sanctifying yourself, working on these issues, the last thing that you'll have to work on probably is your tongue. So think carefully before speaking. Paul's positive command here is to speak only what's good for edification according to the need of the moment. Now I'll have to confess to you that my problem is the second half of that statement personally. I think I can generally find the right words. I think I'm generally able to understand, oh, that would hurt someone. Oh, I shouldn't say that. Oh, but I should say this. That part of the process is not so hard for me. The part of the process is the need of the moment. So often I've said things later, my wife's like, why did you say that? And then she'll walk me through. Well, this was being said, then this was going on, and then you said this. Now think about that. I'm like, ooh, that was a bad time to say that. There's been times when I've spilled the beans on a surprise party. You know, I didn't know somebody else didn't know something, so I said something that they weren't supposed to know. Oh, now I got in the middle of something I didn't want to get in the middle of. That's just me. I guess I'm oblivious to certain things. I need to work on that. So for me, it's, it's never intentional. I don't go around saying nasty things to hurt people intentionally, but I just miss things. Just don't catch the detail. I don't think about what's coming out of my mouth sometimes. And so Paul puts the two together for us. There are those who are intentionally vindictive who have a heart that wants to hurt with their words. I don't understand that personally, but I know it's there. And then there are those who are never intentionally trying to hurt, or rarely, I won't say never, but it's more about they don't get it. And that's not an excuse. We have to be working on being more attentive. You know, in business, we would call it listening skills. We have to be thinking about the other person even as we're listening so that we're consciously aware of what's the right thing to say now. And there are times, friends, when it's better to say nothing because that's the best way to edify. 
So the purpose in this command, he says, the justification is to give grace to everyone. I love this statement because grace means being nice to the person who hasn't necessarily been nice to you. It means refraining from a criticism against the person who deserves critique. It means listening patiently to that long-winded person, laughing at the jokes that that other person tells every time you see them. It means showing grace to another by using carefully chosen words that edify, rather than the ones that first pop into your mind from the flesh. Your Bible may not reflect this accurately, but in verse 30, Paul is continuing on the conversation about speaking when he connects the thought of verse 29 to what he says in verse 30. In my Bible, it makes verse 30 look like it's a standalone command, but it's not. Paul is saying we should show grace to all in our speech because to do otherwise is grieving the Holy Spirit. He's connecting grace here. We have been shown grace by the Holy Spirit living in us, so don't grieve the Holy Spirit by failing to show even the least amount of grace to someone else. Think about it. What's the least way you can show grace to someone? Not saying a hurtful word? Being polite? Being nice in your words? That's got to be the least way that you can show grace to somebody. And that's, I think, the idea here is that the Holy Spirit's done so much for you. Don't grieve him by doing the least for someone else. Do you remember in Matthew 18 when Jesus was teaching on a similar concept? He taught a parable of a man who himself had been forgiven a great debt, but then he went and was unwilling to be forgiving of a smaller debt that was owed to him. You remember when Jesus taught on this? He was saying, we have to be ready to show grace to others as has been shown to us. And you will never, you will never show as much grace to other people as God has already shown to you. So you will always be in his debt in that respect. That's the service we provide God in thanks for his mercy. We're going to cover the fifth one next time as we move into chapter 5. And that leaves us this morning reflecting on the need to lay aside our old self and put on the new by pursuing a renewing of our mind in the word of God. So that as we walk our new walk, we'll give special consideration to those sins that may be interfering with the unity we have in this body or with our communion with others, because it's in this body God has created an assembly suited to help us in that walk we all say we want to pursue. So our participation in this body in an honest way and a consistent way is the first mission of every believer as we put on the new self. You could say it's our spiritual service of worship. We'll continue in this as we go further next time. Let's pray. Father, guide our studies, encourage our hearts to stay with us, uh, stay with that study of your word, to, to remain in your word. Give us new desires, Father. Take away the old. Renew our minds so that we'll walk according to the Spirit. Take all that energy and effort that we think we put into changing ourselves, Father, and let us put it back into knowing you. So that as we know you, Father, as we know Christ, We'll be more like him. And we can turn back at a later time and and just see the work you've done. How we've changed. And we can give you the glory for it. Pray this in Jesus' name.